turn in your Bibles now to Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 13 to 22. And this is what it says. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkey, donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the book of Job is considered by most scholars the oldest printed book of the Bible. Now by that we don't mean that it's older in its story or content than say the book of Genesis, but rather that its printed version's been around longer than any other printed versions of the Bible stories. And so what that means is, is that it was not uncommon for this kind of story to be written down and passed along in the days of Job. In fact, in the culture of the ancient Near East that Job was a part of, it was not uncommon for people to sort of keep a diary when things were going really rough. Uh, people did this in a variety of ways. There's a really peculiar tradition of the people of where they would capture their tears in a little jar. And there were tears of sorrow and tears of joy and they would capture these in jars and then seal them with wax and their little jars would remind them of the different episodes of their lives. And in the same way, they would write an account of the most difficult and bitter times they'd experienced. And so Job's story is not uncommon in that it exists in this era of human history. What is uncommon is Job and his God. Where others would write these stories to try to explain why bad things happen to seemingly good people, in order to say, you know, I've studied myself, examined myself, and found myself wanting, and therefore I understand now why this happened to me. Job will not relent. He will continue to say throughout this entire story that he has not sinned against God and that this was not the result of any wrongdoing on his part, nor will he try to blame God for his suffering. And we'll see all of this fleshed out over the next several weeks. 
these written accounts were kept in order to help people deal with the fact that life was dangerous in those days. Some of the things that happened to Job all in this one day were very common. Raiders from foreign tribes. There weren't the same kind of organized city-states and things there and then that there are now. And, and uh, this is why you read, for example, in Genesis that uh, Abraham kind of had his own standing army. You know, if you were going to prosper in a time of, uh, of Wild West sort of survival, you needed to have your own defenses and your own methods of protecting your wealth and so forth. And these were not uncommon things that happened to Job. But the fact that they all hit at once and hit with such ferocity and such total devastation is unusual. And so we know the backstory. We know there's more going on than what can be seen. Job doesn't know this yet. And so the thing about Job that is unique in this story from all the others like it is that Job was God's servant and that he was worshiping and serving the true God. That Job got it right. He knew the real God. And the reason we could say that with confidence is because when the accuser challenged God, God said, have you considered my servant Job? So as far as God is concerned, Job is his man. He is sure that Job is worshiping the right God. And Job is sure he is worshiping the right God. And as I was saying just a little while ago before the service started, the overarching message of Job is this question of whether Job worships God because he truly loves this entirely unique being we call God, or is it because like everyone else in his neighborhood and his times, he figures if he gives God what God wants, God will give him what he wants. The big difference between really loving the person you're dependent on or just giving them what they want so they'll give you what you want. And this is the overarching message of Job. This is the challenge of the accuser. And so I really admire Job because here he is at a moment that some of you have experienced. Maybe you have lost someone or experienced some sudden and tragic event in your life. And if you have, you know how it is, and I'm afraid I'm bringing back pain for you if I tell you, but you, you get to this point where you can vividly remember what you were doing when the phone call came. There's nothing like the phone ringing in the middle of the night, or what you were doing when the knock on the door came, or one of those things happened, where life was fine and you were doing what you do every day, and then suddenly time stopped. Time came to a screeching halt, and all of a sudden, it was like a dream, a really bad dream. And just hearing about that again has probably taken you to that place. And you see, what happens when people are in those times and that terrible news comes, when they realize that something has changed forever, and in an instant, there is grief. And grief is a very real human response that is common to all people. And it always comes whenever we've lost something in a permanent sense. Uh, in a permanent sense. That is to say that whether it is the death of a loved one or whether it's the death of a dream, 
whether it's the passing of an aged parent or whether it's the passing of a station of your own life, there is a sense of permanent change and it causes grief. And in human secular sense, grief has been defined as certain stages, but the reality is, is that it is a quantifiable, measurable state of affairs. That is to say that grief occurs to everyone when there is sudden loss or whenever there's permanent change, and we will go through those stages. So when the phone call comes, time stops, and then there's this denial, this sense that it's not real, that, that this is going to change. I'm going to wake up and this is all going to be over. I'm going to, I'm going to look to the door and that person is going to walk through the door. And so we go through that denial period. And then we go through a period of, of great anger and frustration. And we'll lash out at God and anyone else we think we can make responsible. And then we'll come to the point where we'll bargain with God. We'll try to undo all of it. And then there's this, this moment of, of deep depression that's usually followed by acceptance. And then there's a change. Sometimes it takes a long time towards further growth. It doesn't bring back what was lost and it doesn't change the sense of emptiness that comes with loss, but you do find a way to press on. And as I said, these are losses not only of loved ones and so forth, but it's also the loss of jobs, dreams, homes, you know, you name it, things that you rely on that have changed suddenly and seemingly permanently. So you can imagine then what Job was feeling because he may have been a man of tremendous faith. He may have been courageous enough to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the Lord. But the fact of the matter remains the same. He was experiencing all the terrors and grief of any normal human being at a time like the one we just read. How do I know this, you might ask? Well, because it says he tore his robe and he shaved his head. He was in the bitter depths of grief and shock and awe. When I hear him saying those words, I don't think he says it with some profound stoic seriousness. I think he was probably covered in the dust of his own wallering. He was streaked with mud tears and dried tear stains on his face. He was, he was probably bleeding from the way that he scalped himself as a response to this, to this terrible news. He was, he was devastated, I'm sure. And yet even laying in the dust, weeping and mourning, he says, but God, you are still God. You don't owe me anything. You are still worthy of praise, even though I don't understand you right now. I mean, there's a tremendous faith there. But it isn't a faith that's pretty. It's gritty faith, not pretty faith. It's ugly faith. But it's real. And so this story of Job is one that we all need to deal with. It's probably why it's there. It's probably why it's one of the foundational written books of the Bible. Because we have to understand God when God doesn't make sense. We have to be willing to love and honor God even when it seems as though God doesn't love us. I don't think Job was a vain man, but I 
do think that he probably had reason to think that because God had prospered him, God would also protect him. It's a logical conclusion. It's reasonable to think that because God has done so much good for you, that God will continue to do good for you. And yet, for some reason, this terrible thing has happened. And he is in total shock and dismay. And later on, as we study this book together over the next few weeks, we'll hear his shock and dismay. We'll hear his frustration and anger. But we will not hear him condemn God or question God's character. Rather, he will be one who is trying to make sense of what's happening to him, even while his pals are trying to help him reason it out in a way that he completely rejects because their expectations about God are so vastly different from his own. I remember early in my ministry career, back in the mid-90s, I was going to school in the summer, and when I was away one time in Chicago, a member of my church down in, in uh, southern Indiana had experienced the sudden unexpected loss of their young son, their young adult son. And I'd gotten word about it and tried to call and comfort and had very little luck, and then it ended up that I couldn't do much for them until I got back uh, from school a few weeks later. And when I got back, I went right away to their home and I tried to offer consolation and comfort and I got angrily dismissed by the mom because it was assumed that I couldn't possibly understand what she was going through. Don't call me, I'll call you, pastor. And I was out the door and devastated because I thought that I'd failed so miserably to do my job to help this person in their time of grief. And I questioned myself considerably, and, and you know, that old ugly bony finger of accusation came out in the mirror and in the, in the voices of some of the other people in the church saying, maybe you should rethink your calling to ministry, pastor. <laughs> and you know, the truth is, I did need to rethink it. And I did spend a great deal of time talking with my elders in the faith and, and in the ministry profession because I wasn't a young man at the time, but I was pretty new at this ministry business. And I consulted scripture, which obviously took me to Job, and I prayed a lot. And I began to understand some things as word among the congregation began to trickle back to me that this person wasn't really all that angry with me. They were just really angry with God, and I represented God to them. That seems reasonable. There is a certain priestly role that comes with being your pastor. A priest is one who is an intercessor for God, a person who acts as God's presence in sacred and special ways. And I began to understand that that was probably the case, but I thought I could have done a better job just the same, and so I learned from that experience. But what I realized was that this person had been with her husband, a very active member of the church, very generous in their giving, very committed to helping with the funeral dinners and helping with the programs and singing in the choir and always very devoted in their prayer life every day. You know, they. They were really committed, church-going believers. But there was one fundamental flaw in her thinking. 
And I can only tell you this now because I'm certain that by this stage in that person's life, there's been reconciliation with God and spiritual growth. And I'm confident this is no longer the case. But at this point, this was a person who was an exemplary churchman, you know, a person who really did church well. And because of that, expected God to deliver her from every conceivable difficulty. When in fact, there was much more to the story than I'm at liberty to share with you right now. And in fact, she'd felt very let down by God because she expected things from God in exchange for what she had done for God. And God didn't keep God's end of the deal. Now you might want to condemn her in your thought, but I would advise against it because we are all guilty of this sin. We all want to believe that because of our faithfulness to the things of our religion and so forth, that God owes us something. And one of the things I learned as a result of this experience was that God doesn't owe me anything. I learned because I started asking myself, what would I do if that bad news came to my house someday? Now, at the time of this story, my children were very small and they were safely under my care in my home. But one day they would become teenagers and they would be out and about and I wouldn't have so much control over what happened to them. But at that moment, all I thought was as well, if bad news comes, I won't turn my back on God like that. But somehow in my heart, and this I don't think was so much the Hasatan, the accuser, as it was maybe the Lord himself saying, you know, Dan, maybe you will, maybe you won't. You need to look at me in a different way. And so what I learned in that experience was that if I'm really going to come alongside people during tragic and difficult times in their lives, if I'm going to offer anything of value, it's going to have to come from real wisdom, from Scripture, from God himself. And what I realized was is that it's a matter of perspective. Now, you know what perspective is. Perspective is way thing, the way things look from where you're standing. See, I have a perspective of this crowd right now that is unique to the person who's at this podium on this platform. From where you're sitting, the crowd looks very different. That's perspective. And so what I found was is that many of us who go to church all our lives and pray regularly and give regularly and glorify God with our songs and our, our praises and our little statues in our yard and our stickers on our cars and stuff like that, what, what we're really doing is we're confining God to a particular point of view, a perspective. We're expecting God to behave a certain way because we've behaved a certain way. And so the biggest issue that lies in this story of Job is the reality that Job is encountering a real person not a God of the harvest or a God of fertility or a God of, of financial success or a God who is overseeing certain other aspects of life, the God of the water, the God of the sun, the God of the sky. No, this is a person. This is a being unique in all that exists. And so here is a God that by the very nature of God is unfathomable impossible to completely grasp 
and yet a being all the same, therefore complex and lovable without being entirely understandable. And to love God is to accept God for who God is and most importantly, to not impose upon God our expectations. Where do we get this idea that God has to acquiesce to all of our demands? Where do we get such crazy ideas? Where did it come to us that we could say, God, I want, I need, you can do this, you should do that, and God has to comply? God, by very nature, doesn't have to do a darn thing I ask God to do. Any God that would obey me isn't much of a God. Any supreme being who is willing to subject himself to my whim isn't very supreme. And so the first thing we have to accept, and you hear that Job has accepted this in his words at the end of his very, very bad day. God be praised, he can make it happen and he can take it away. We have to accept that God doesn't owe us anything. God does not owe me anything. God has given me something that is unbelievable. I think it's what John Newton meant when he wrote the words to Amazing Grace, is this is in completely inconceivable. That God would choose by God's own desire to save me. Not because of anything I've done to deserve it, but because God chooses to do so. Because God wants to do so. And so on God's own initiative, with no involvement from any human who ever lived, except maybe his son, our Lord Jesus, who was both God and human, he decides to save us from our very tendency to ignore and reject his authority. And so in the most remarkable act of selflessness the world has ever known, God gives God's self for my sake, not because I did anything to deserve it, and I didn't even take the initiative. I didn't bargain with God and say, you know, if you'll fix this, I'll follow you. Rather, God creates a way for me to follow him and then invites me to do so. Rather, God saves me for membership in his household if I will simply acquiesce to his one demand. This is my son. Follow him. Do as he says. It's a matter of perspective. If we have thought that God somehow owes us something, we're looking at God the wrong way. If we think that if we have done enough good and been righteous enough in and of ourselves, God will protect us from harm, we're fooling ourselves, and there's a day coming that's going to be very awful for you. May I say, as your pastor and your friend, after all these decades of doing this, I've witnessed it too many times. Lovely families. 
brokenhearted overnight because of a sudden and terrible loss, a tragedy, and they don't know what to do because they didn't see it coming. Because they didn't believe that it would ever happen to them. It always happens to somebody else. Can I tell you a little secret you may not know? We're all going to die. I'm sorry for you young people. Maybe that's frightening to you, but don't be afraid. It doesn't mean that something terrible is going to happen to you. It just simply means that no one lives forever. At least not as we understand life right now. The fact is, is that we all have 80 or 90 years if we do well physically. And then our time passes. My dad's 87. Do you ever stop and think about the fact that every time you get well from an illness or an injury, you've just beaten the odds one more time? But as you grow older, your number of wins begins to decrease. It's really that simple. It's not something we want to hear, we want to talk about, but if we're going to be honest, and it takes a great deal of humility and honesty to talk about God this way, but once that kind of humility enters into our conversation about God and with God, we're on the road to peace and joy that surpasses all understanding. Because when we realize that our lives are really subject to that old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Then we're just fooling ourselves. Everyone will grow old someday and die. The only escape is that if Christ should come before that day of departure. And when you're around older people of faith, they're ready, most of them, as ready as any person can be, because there's still a factor of faith there and unknown things, but what we, what we realize is, is we've had a lot of wins. We've had a lot of victories over death and discomfort and disease, but we can't win forever. And this brings us back to the heart of the gospel. The good news is, is this life isn't all there is. The good news is, is that we have a few years on this earth in this form and we have an eternity to be around because of Christ's salvation with our Father in heaven and with all of those who have died in Christ, that we have a great victory over sin and death that wasn't our own, but it makes us more than the few years that we're here on earth. So... Yes, there will be suffering. Everyone will die unless Christ should come before your time. Most of us will have some sort of difficulty in life, some sort of tragedy. There will be injuries and accidents and deaths and fires and troubles and financial crises. There's all gonna, it'll all come sooner or later. And it's all about how we choose to look at God in those moments. Job did not sin against God. He recognized that simple truth that we sometimes say in church that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Even if my life isn't good. Even if my life is hard. 
So let me tell you about another time when a couple in my church experienced the sudden and tragic death of their teenage son. This time I was around for all of it. This time I was with the mother when she let him go. She'd cried so much there were no tears left. There were just dry heaves. This time I was a little better prepared, but that's not really what this story is about. She was better prepared too. We cried and we hugged. We prayed. We cried and hugged some more. And she would say things like, oh God, why, why did this happen? And I would simply say softly under my breath, Lord, we love you, but we don't always understand you. And she'd say, amen. And then we'd cry and sob and hug some more. And we'd look at this poor, lifeless young man. And then she'd say, oh, Lord, why? And I would say, Lord, we love you, but we don't understand. And over the next few days, we were together a lot, making the preparations and moving through this terrible time. And, you know, when young people die, church sanctuaries fill up for a little while, for an hour or two. And everybody's looking for an answer. Everybody's trying to understand why. And I stood in front of all three, four hundred kids filling that place from wall to wall. Bethany was there. That whole family was there. And, and I, I said, Lord, we love you, but we don't understand why. And I got a multiple amens. And we said, Lord, we're upset. We're angry. We're frustrated. We're disappointed. This isn't fair but we love you. I guess it was our version of Job's statement of faith. Eventually, I would be in Israel with mom and dad. We stood on, we stood on the, the Mount of Olives looking over at the city of Jerusalem and I was telling them about how the Bible says one day Jesus will stand with one foot here on the Mount of Olives and the other foot there on Zion and he will welcome all those who have died into the holy city and bring them forward, all who have died in faith in Christ and all who were alive at the time of his coming. And, and I said, you know, Michael's going to be there. We're going to be there. We'll all be there. The Bible assures us that even though right now we miss him terribly, it's going to be okay. This is not the end of the story. It's just a difficult chapter. We're still friends to this day, and I've spoken to them frequently since then. Their faith is remarkable. Their pastor was better equipped, but it was all about them and their incredible faith. You see, after one devastating blow after another, Job still knows God's name shall be blessed and praised. I remember once upon a time I lived a very sheltered life and I rarely saw the inside of a funeral home and I, I really didn't know what it was like to stand with somebody through these sacred moments that are so often tragic. And then almost overnight it changed and I found myself immersed in personal tragedies of all sorts and kinds over the years. And I found that presence is far more valuable than words. 
that when you're called to the side of someone who's having a difficult time, your presence is the most important thing. You don't have to say anything clever. In fact, if you try to say something clever, it'll probably sound stupid to the person that's grieving. What we know is this, is that when we were born again in Jesus Christ, we transferred our citizenship from earth, which is limited, to heaven, which is eternal. And it's really just a question of which side of heaven we're on right now. For the moment, we're here, but one day we'll be there. For the moment, we're separated from those people who are there, but one day we'll be with them there. And then we know from Scripture that then there will come a day when they are here and we are with them. For the moment, we are sojourners in a foreign desert land, biding our time until we get to go to the place Jesus called paradise. And if you look at the historical saints, not so distant and way back in Jesus' time, they all had one thing in common, they longed for heaven. They longed for heaven. Job isn't interested in dealing with the God or the gods his friends will argue for. He knows his Redeemer lives and that one day he will see him face to face in his flesh with his own eyes. Job is in love with a being who is his creator. Can you stay in love with God even when God doesn't make any sense? Hopefully these messages will help. The most important thing you can do is pray and talk to God honestly. So let's pray now. God, I thank you for your word and I pray that you burn it on our hearts to change our nature, to conform our image to your image so that we might be ready and willing to suffer whatever comes for your name's sake and not, not in some noble sense, but simply because we love you. And this we pray in the name of the one who brings us into your house, our Lord Jesus, Savior Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.